Okay, for those of you who uh, were not here starting in January, uh, I don't know what to say, you failed the class because you missed too many classes at this point. Uh, <laughs> those of you who are newly enrolled, you know, you get a pass on this. Uh, but you have to make up all the work, yeah. We have been, we started in January a series that I entitled Route 66. And we are looking at every book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And we are looking at how we see the see Jesus through every book of the Bible. And of course, uh, as you see here this evening, we're picking up in Isaiah. Uh, and we got through from January to May, we got through, of course, I, uh, Genesis all the way through Song of Solomon, and we left off there. Uh, now, for those of you that are new, we don't uh, this is not an exhaustive study of every book of the Bible because we just don't have the time to do it. And uh, so it's really just a, a survey of the books of the Bible. We look at the ways in which the, the, the books have been compiled. We look at the authorship and some outlines, some brief outlines of the book. And then we spend some time just looking at how we see Jesus in these books. So, and, and there are weeks in which we actually combine a couple books together. So next week we're going to be in Jeremiah, and Jeremiah also, also authored Lamentations. And so we're going to actually look at both of those books tomorrow, or not tomorrow, next week. So we are picking up here in uh, Isaiah, and I know that those of you who were here from January to May, you're like most people and you do not remember anything we talked about in the five months prior to this because you had three months off. I'm a teacher, I know. Uh, I had a class this past Thursday and uh, we were talking about the names of God in my class. And we talked about uh, Yahweh Sidkenu. He is the God of righteousness. And that class ended and then I went to chapel and I asked in chapel, I said, how many in my class remember uh, what uh, the, the God of righteousness, what his Hebrew name is. And I looked at all the students who were in my class and they looked as if it was the first time they had ever heard it. And I even told, we even said the word Tzidkenu over and over again because I just think it's a fun word to say. However, they had no idea what I was talking about. So I do not blame any of you for forgetting everything that we've learned already from Genesis uh, to uh, Song of Solomon. However, because we are now entering a new section in the Old Testament. It's also a review night. So there you go. It works out really, really well. So here on your outline, I just go through this. If you have any questions as we're going through, sometimes I talk really fast and I move over things. Just raise your hand and say, hey, I didn't get that. And we'll go back and look at it. But just in way of review on the first page here, we're going to look at the divisions of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is divided really into four major sections. Did you not get a first page? And you didn't get the second page. So there's a first page and there's a second page. I was going to say, I didn't have any odd ones left. Same thing. You need the second page. Dustin, do you need the first page? You need the first page, yes. Oh, so you need the second one. Alright, so everybody should have one that looks like this and then one that looks like this. I blame again I blame this on Pastor Jeremy because usually I copy it front and then back 
Uh, although, he plugged my little thing into the computer and he said, uh, or no, no, he didn't plug it in, but he said, I can't find it anywhere. And it was still laying on the desk. I said, well, it'd help if you actually plugged it into the computer first. Uh, enough talking bad about him when he's not here to defend himself. So, divisions of the Old Testament. Anybody who was here, I know Mr. Gentry was here, Pridgens were here in and out a little bit. Um, Beth was here. Anybody remember the four, and maybe you know this already, the four major divisions of the Old Testament? First five books. Is called what? The Pentateuch. The Pentateuch or? Somebody said it. Law. Law, yes. So the first section is the law. It's the first five books, the Pentateuch, oftentimes referred to the books of Moses. Uh, and in there, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and the surfer's favorite book of the Bible, Deuteronomy. Uh, that joke never gets old for me. So the, the first five books is called the law. The second part, we pick it up after uh, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, known as history. history. Yes, the history books. So in there we find, of course, how God has worked in the nation of Israel and we learn about all the kings and we learn about all the judges and, and how God really worked in the lives of all these people to really uh, bring a formation to his nation, how he brought them out of slavery, brought them into the promised land and all of those things. So then we pick it up. Psalms, actually starting with Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Poetry. You're not, re you're not looking at my notes, are you? No. Okay. In my class, we sit around the table, too, and there's a girl that sits there, always looks at my notes, and she has all the answers. <laughs> Poetry, yes. So those are the poetic books. Um, and like I said, Job is Job's kind of a transition book. It's a historical book, but it's also a poetry book. So uh, poetry includes Job, Psalms, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then we pick it up here, like we are tonight, Isaiah, all the way to the Italian prophet Malachi. <laughs> Again, that's another one of my favorite Old Testament jokes. <laughs> is what? The prophets, yes, prophets. And the prophets are divided into two sections as well. We have the major prophets and the minor prophets. What constitutes one being a major and one being a minor? That's it. That's the only reason why. Uh, not that one prophet was uh, somehow equipped more than another prophet. It's just simply they did that because of the length of the books. The longer ones are the major prophets. The shorter ones are the minor prophets. Now, I don't know about you, but anytime I move into the minor prophets, I can never remember. Keep those in order. Habakkuk, Amos, Zephaniah, you know. Anytime somebody says turn to one of the minor prophets, I either have to go to the table of contents to find what page, or I just like thumb through real slow, pretend like I know where they are, and I eventually find them. Now that's in our English Bibles. In the Hebrew Bible, it's a little bit different. They only have three major sections, and they are called the Law, the Prophets, and the writings. And it's not even in the same order that our English Bible is. So law, of course, starts. And then the prophets. And then the writings is what ends the Old Testament, or the, the Hebrew Bible. I can't really call it the Old Testament. It is, it is their Bible. So uh, where ours ends in Malachi, uh, the Hebrew Bible, of course, those prophets are contained in the middle. So law, prophets, and writings is really how they divide them. Now, the books of the law were written during Israel's initial years. 
This is the, of course, Genesis, and God calls Abram out, and uh, the the nation is just beginning. We have uh, the flood, the Tower of Babel, all of those things, and God is just now at this point, uh, really kind of bringing the P, His chosen people, together. We move on to the historical books, and they were written during Israel's growing years. So Judges, and then King David comes on the scene, uh, well Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, and then we have the divided kingdom, and we have the, the ten northern tribes, we have the two southern tribes, and of course the, the, in the north they, they never do anything right, they have wicked king after wicked king after wicked king, God takes them into captivity, the southern kingdom, they're kind of, you know, they vote one way, one year, or another way, it's kind of like America, you know, they go back and forth and they have good kings, they have bad kings, but then eventually God takes them into captivity. And all that happens in the history of uh, Israel. God, of course, brings them out of captivity. They come back into the land. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the city walls. All of those things. Okay, the poetry books were written during, this is what they say, uh, the poetry books were written during Israel's golden years. Of course, when David is king of the nation, uh, that's really the, the golden years of the, of the nation. Uh, they are conquering their nation, other nations. The kingdom is expanding. There's, uh, you know, David then passes on the kingdom. It's kind of a, a uh, peaceful time for the kingdom. Solomon's writing his wisdom literature. And it's really that golden years of the kingdom. And then we come to the prophecy books, and that is what they consider the, the dark years. And as we look through Isaiah, you're going to see that. The, the kingdom is now, they, they've almost totally rejected God. They're going their own way. They, uh, and God really at this point is warning them over and over again. Uh, I want you to come back to me. If you don't come back to me, I'm going to take you into captivity. And of course, it's during this time too that, uh, you know, they always say when it, it's always darkest right before the sun rises. And that's what we see here. They, they're going through all these dark times and God is telling them, Hey, if you don't shape up, if you don't listen up, some bad things are going to happen. But by the way, there's going to be this great day of the Lord when the Messiah returns and he reigns finally, fully, and forever uh, in his eternal kingdom. And so we find all those things in the uh, prophetic literature. Uh, the prophets in Scripture, a definition of the prophet, if you have your Bible, which I hope you do, uh, turn over to Deuteronomy 18.18. I am. I read from the New American Standard Bible, so it might be a little bit different than yours. Uh, Romans eighteen eighteen. It says, "I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will, will require it of him." So you look at that verse 18 and verse 19. What, how does God define a prophet? One who speaks for him. Yes, 
His mouthpiece. Somebody who speaks for God. That's what it is. Uh, a, a simple, very simple definition of a prophet is one who spoke for God. God had a message he wanted to tell the people, and he would tell this individual, and then he would tell all the people what God had spoken. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, there was prophets who spoke for God. He spoke, he, he took the message from God to the people. Uh, another person that we have in the Old Testament is the priest. He actually kind of did the exact opposite thing. He took the words from the people to God. He's the one who made intercession, uh, as we've been hearing about repeatedly in Hebrews. He's the one who would go into the, the tabernacle or to the temple, and he's the one who would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people and, and do that, intercede for the people to God. And then there's a third person, and that was the king. And he was the one who was to rule over the people. And ultimately, we see all three of these uh, offices that God had in the Old Testament, all three at one point now, are all uh, unified in one person of Jesus Christ, who comes as the prophet. He's the one who spoke to the people what God had said, and is actually not only that, but he is the very word of God. He is our high priest, as we've seen in Hebrews. He's our high priest who makes intercession for us. And ultimately, he is our king. So we see that Jesus then ultimately fulfills all of these uh, positions that God had had in the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, and king. Now the time frame for the prophets is about 500 years. And it goes from the 10th to the 5th century B.C. Those of you who know your B.C. history, you know exactly everything that happened between the 10th and 5th century B.C. And I would love to learn some of it if you know it. <laughs> In the 5th century B.C., of course, B.C. stands for before Christ. So there were 500 years when there was no prophet in the land. So when Malachi ends, from Malachi to the book of Matthew, when Jesus comes on the scene, 500 years where the people did not hear from God. That's a long time. And so you can imagine when Jesus comes onto the scene and Jesus comes as a prophet, how he just enthralls the, the thoughts and the, the, uh, the memories of all these people because they've been hearing year after year after year, maybe the Messiah will come. We haven't heard on a prophet for now 499 years. Okay? And Jesus comes and he speaks as one who is speaking for God. And of course, multitudes of people come to see him because it had been 500 years. All these people at this point had heard stories from their, their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents and their great great-great-great-grandparents for 500 years these stories kept being passed down from generation to generation now in this is not in your notes this is extra I won't charge extra for it uh, in the prophets there are major minor prophets there's 17 books that compose the prophecy part and that's including the book of Lamentations which really isn't a prophet but it is written by a prophet so these numbers don't add up if you're a math major uh, there are four major prophets and 12 minor prophets that make up the 17 books of the prophecy okay now you throw lamentations in there I guess it was written by Jeremiah who's a major prophet you could consider that maybe depending on how you want to do that but four major 12 minor make up the the prophecy 
Now some people have taken these prophets and they have also broken them down according to when they prophesied. So uh, of course the, the big dividing point here is the exile when God said, all right, uh, you know, I've had enough, you're getting out of the land. And so he takes them out of the land. That's called the exile. He takes them out of the land. So there are many prophets who were pre, they call them pre-exilic prophets. So these are prophets who spoke before God took them out of the land. And this comprises actually the largest majority of the prophets. Most of them that we have in the scriptures spoke before the exile. Why do you think that was? To prepare them. Okay, to prepare them for the exile. Okay. It was a longer period of time. Okay. All good answers, but it's not the right answer because that's not the one I'm looking for. But <laughs> what? God wasn't communicating with them before they had Well, he was using. This is the largest group is pre-exilic. So uh, most of the prophets spoke during that time. Well, Jeremiah prophesied for seventy years. Daniel interpreted the seventy years. That's what you're looking at, then you'll do that when you get ready to go home. Okay. Mm-hmm. God gets a bad rap sometimes in the Old Testament, right? Sometimes most people will look at the Old Testament and say, God is just mean in the Old Testament. I mean, just killing people and didn't seem to really care about anybody. But it's the same God that is in the Old Testament is the same God we find in the New Testament. I think, this is just me personally, not that any of you were wrong in any way, shape, or form. I think he spoke most through these pre-exilic prophets because of his compassion and his patience. And over and over again, through all these prophets, he's warning them, listen, I want you to repent. And if you don't repent, you're going to be exiled. I don't want to have to do that to you. He's like a, a, a patient, loving father who says, I don't want to have to discipline you, but if you don't get your act together, it's going to happen. And listen, for 2,000 years, God has been doing it even today through Jesus. That uh, you know, Second uh, Peter tells us that God is not slow concerning his promises as some men count slowness. Why? Because he's patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God did the same thing in the Old Testament. He said, I'm being patient with you. I want you to repent. I mean, God, of course, didn't want to have to discipline these people. He didn't want to have to take them out of the land because this was his kingdom of priests. This was his chosen people. This was the nation that was supposed to be different than all the other nations around them to draw more people into a relationship with him. And over and over again, they keep fouling up, they keep messing up, they keep going back to their foolishness, they continue to sin, and then finally God says, I have to do something. And okay, so you don't have to write all these down, but these are all the pre-exilic prophets. And uh, these are in chronological order from the times in which they lived. Now, you know our Bible's not always, when we get to the prophets, isn't in chronological order. So Obadiah, Joel... Jonah, uh, anybody here see the, the Veggie Tales Jonah? Why did Why did Jonah have to go to Nineveh from Veggie Tales? Well, Come on. Well, no, in Veggie, you probably hadn't seen Veggie Tales. <laughs> <laughs> I 
In VeggieTales, why did God send Jonah to Nineveh? Because they were slapping each other with fish. Remember? <laughs> okay, anyways. Uh, so Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, or ha, ha, some people say it another way. Habakkuk, you know, or, or Habakkuk. I say it the Yankee way. You all probably say it the Southern way. Uh, Zephaniah and Jeremiah. So all those prophets lived before the exile happened. And their whole job was to call out to the people, come back to the Lord. Repent. God is long-suffering. God is a God who will restore you if you repent. He's a forgiving God. He's a loving God. But also, they were saying also, not only those things, but most importantly, God is a holy God. And if you do not repent of your sin, God will deal with it. And then we get to the exilic prophets. These are the prophets who lived during the exile. So this is when they were taken out of the land and they were in captivity. And that is Ezekiel and Daniel. We all know Daniel, right? And the lion's den and his three buddies thrown in the furnace. And then some of Jeremiah uh, was written after the exile had actually happened. And then the post-exilic prophets, these are prophets who lived when the people came back to the land. And that is Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi. <laughs> I always think of uh, uh, two guys on a trapeze artist when I see Malachi. I think of Malachi. The Malachi brothers. And, you know, <laughs> these little short hairy guys that swing in the trapeze. But I have a really weird mind. <laughs> so, uh, however, when we look at all these prophets, pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic prophets, they really have four major categories of the messages that they gave to the people. Number one is the dispersion and captivity of God's chosen people. They were, they were considered primarily, they, they were warning the people, captivity is coming. God's going to take you out of the land. A nation's going to come and dispossess you. You're going to be hauled off into captivity and you're going to have to live in a foreign nation with foreign gods for a generation if you do not turn this around. So that's the first message. Secondly, the coming of God's chosen king. So in the prophets, they're, they're either talking about uh, the exile is coming or sometimes, of course, we see they're talking about the coming of the ultimate king, the Messiah. Of course, we see that ultimately in the form of Jesus. Number three is the restoration of God's chosen people. So yes, they're telling them that you, know, you are going to be taken into captivity. You are going to be dispossessed from the land. But God is a restoring God. Are you not thankful for that? <laughs> God says, I will restore you. The day is coming when you will go into exile. You'll you'll kind of, quote-unquote, I know it's a bad analogy, a bad term, but uh, quote-unquote, you're going to serve your time. <laughs> okay? And God's going to restore you. He's going to bring you back into the land. And then finally, the reign of God's chosen king. So we see this oftentimes in prophecy, that, uh, and they talk about the great day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord, uh, the day in which God's chosen king will sit on the, on, on the throne forever. 
So all when you look through prophecy, usually they're speaking to one of those four categories as you look through prophecy. Now, oftentimes it gets really confusing because oftentimes a lot of these messages are overlapping with one another. So he's talking about the dispersion and captivity, and you come right to the next chapter, and he's talking about the ultimate reign of Jesus, the Messiah. And then the very next chapter, he's talking about restoring the people back into the land. And then the very next chapter, he's talking about the Jesus coming the first time, and and how he's going to provide salvation for God's people. So as you read through it, it's, it's in one of those four categories, but it would be nice if it was just kind of sectioned off and we would know, all right, so here he's talking about the captivity. Now here he's talking about the restoration to the land. Now here he's talking about the coming of Jesus. And now here he's talking about his ultimate reign. It'd be nice if he did that, but that's not always the case. And sometimes even from verse to verse within the same chapter, they go from one to the other. And sometimes... There's verses that have a double meaning where he's talking about the restoration into the land, but he's also talking about the ultimate restoration when Jesus comes to rule as king. So three elements in the messages of the prophets. This is how they typically prophesied. Number one is a present message. A present message. Yes. Number two is a future message which he's talking about judgment, the coming of the Messiah, the reign of the Messiah, so it's always future. And then a living message. The living message is the applications that you and I receive from the words. Second Timothy tells us what? That all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine or teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped, adequate for every good work. So even when we read Isaiah chapter 3 and he's talking about how he's going to send these people into captivity, that's, all, that's part of all scripture. Okay, And it means it's profitable for us today. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So it's a living message that the principles that we find in here are lasting forever. For all generations, not just the generation that Isaiah was speaking specifically to. Now going back to the first two, they have a present message and a future message. And every prophet does this. They have a message that was uh, kind of like a a close-range prophecy and then a long-range prophecy. ESPN update? It was Mr. Gentry. I know say, Arkansas is not playing today. I don't think his is going to go off. Why do you think it, there was a near prophecy and a future prophecy? know what was happening here and he wants you to know what's happening here. <laughs> that's, that's very good. Yeah. Okay. Not just tomorrow, but you know, a hundred tomorrows from now. Could be that the present prophecy is more of a, a warning of some hardships to come and the future prophecy is to provide the hope so that they can get through it. Okay. Again. Again, these are not wrong answers. Not the answers I'm looking for. So it's just more right. <laughs> Yeah, there's a degree of rightness in here. Yes. 
It's very, it's very arbitrary. That's the reason I like mathematics. <laughs> <laughs> what if I told you I was a prophet? And I said, a thousand years from now, this is what God's going to do. How do you authenticate that? We would stone you. <laughs> yes, but I could say, well, how do you know it's not going to happen? Years, when it did happen, we'd stone Yes. <laughs> that was the issue. A false prophet was to be stoned to death. And so anybody could just come out and say, yeah, 500 years from now, this is going to ha God said this is going to happen. Okay, well, how do we authenticate that other than oftentimes having a near prophecy that said, okay, yeah, this is going to happen 500 years from now, but God said this is going to happen next year. So when next year comes by and it doesn't happen, then you can stone me, and then you can know probably what I said was going to happen 500 years from now is not going to happen. And so every prophet does this, I think, I think, now, not that you guys weren't right, uh, primarily to authenticate their message. If I'm going to talk about the coming Messiah who is still thousands of years off, I authenticate that by telling you what's going to happen next year. So now, when it does happen next year, you say, wow, he did, he did prophesy that. He did speak for God. And now I can hold on to the promise that a thousand years from now, the Messiah is going to come. My, my people will be redeemed. There will be peace. There will be comfort. There will be everlasting righteousness because he has authenticated himself as being a prophet. So there's a present message, a close message, and then a far-off message. It's kind of like a, a camera. Those of you that like to take pictures, you zoom in, and that's, that's the near one. And then you zoom out, and you can see the, the wide-angle uh, lens. So that's kind of by way of review. We've gone from Genesis now all the way to the beginning of Isaiah. I gave you some background of the prophets. Now let's turn over, or not turn over, you've got to go to the other sheet, uh, the one that looks like this, that says, Understanding Isaiah on it. <coughs> And we're going to look specifically at Isaiah. Isaiah, the name Isaiah actually means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. Anybody who has a uh, A-H at the end of their name, it's uh, a name that is derived from Yahweh. Uh, it's a name that references God some way. Yahweh is that personal name for God. It's that name that God gave to Moses when Moses said, well, when I get there and they ask who sent me, and he says, well, tell them I am sent you. I am who I am. Uh, that was that personal name for God. And here we see, I, I, I always like the fact that there's times God uses his personal name, and then there's times that God uses his quote-unquote professional name. The personal name is used for somebody that you know really close. Somebody that you know really well. And I used this illustration with the students in my class when we were talking about the names of God this week. I said, now, if somebody asked you who I was, your response would be, they would all look at me and said, Dr. Shook. And I said, but my wife, on the other hand, calls me, no, she still calls me Dr. Shook. <laughs> Not Mr. <Tucker. laughs> 
<laughs> Somebody asked one time, they said, uh, what should we call you? Should we call you Dr. Sh and I always tell people, you just call me what you feel comfortable calling me, but my wife calls me Dr. Sh <laughs> <laughs> my personal name is Ashley, yes, like a 12-year-old girl. And those who are really... Actually, I don't mind. It doesn't bother me. Uh, but my really close friends call me Ash. Uh, or Shook. They just call me by my last name. Uh, my mom, when she's really mad at me, uses Ashley Lynn Shook. Imagine that. My middle name's Lynn. Yeah. Uh, not a whole lot of people. What's that? The doctor must have been wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so... It, okay, I always have to... Alright. I got Ashley because uh, my mom, when she was pregnant with me, decided to read Gone with the Wind. Oh. Prior to reading that book, she said I was going to be called Heath. That was going to be my name. She read that and fell in love with Ashley just like Scarlett O'Hara did. Okay. Uh, so that's, and my dad's middle name is Lynn, and she always knew I was going to, because my brother's middle name is my dad's first name, and I was going to get his, his middle name. So that's how I ended up with that. Not that she wanted a girl or anything like that. So, yeah. If I was a girl, I'd be Scarlett, yes. Uh, but I always enjoy when God uses his personal name. Now here he says Isaiah means Yahweh saves. It's easy for us to look and say, yeah, God is the savior of all people for all time. Uh, the early church and he's the God who saved Paul and he's the God who, has, who saved uh, 3,000 that day at Pentecost. He's the God who is saving thousands and thousands and thousands of people every single day around the globe today. He's a God who saves anybody who calls on his name. But he's also the God who saved me. He's a personal God. He's so personal. The Bible says that he knows how many hair he has to recount every day. But he knows how many hairs are on my head. He's a personal saving God. He knows the depth of my sin and yet saved me. Yahweh saves. He is the, that personal God. So anybody who has that, like Jeremiah, anybody who has that A-H at the end of their name, it's that personal name of God, uh, Yahweh. The book of Isaiah is typically divided into two sections. You have chapters 1 through 39, and then you have chapters 40 through 66. Now keep in mind, as I, I'm going to talk about a few things here that I find really fascinating, but keep in mind, when Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah, he didn't write down, okay, verse chapter 1, verse 1, and then he wrote, and then he said, all right, chapter 1, verse 2, and then wrote. The chapters and the verses were added later. But I, there's some things here that I find really fascinating. I don't know if, uh, you know, the editors who added the chapters and verses did this on purpose. I have no idea, but I find it really fascinating. There are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. How many books of the Bible are there? If you don't know, turn over and look at our little symbol there. 66 books in the Bible. Isaiah is divided into two major sections. How many sections, major sections is the Bible divided into? Two, Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament contains how many books? I gotta show you all this. I, I, I think I showed this before. Uh, here, look. There's 66 books in the entire Bible. All right, 66. Okay. If I take three away from the first six, what do I have? 
Three. Six minus three is three. If I add that same three to the second six, what do I get? Nine. nine. There's 39 Old Testament books. Okay? Three times nine is what? 27. 27, yes, that's right. There's 27 New Testament books. So you'll never forget that again, right? If you take three away from the first six, add it to the second six, you get 39. That's how many Old Testament books. Three times nine is 27. That's how many New Testament books. Look at what I just said here. The book of Isaiah is divided into two sections, chapters 1 through 39. Same number as Old Testament books. So that means that if there's 66, I subtract 39. Mr. Gentry is a math guy. There's how many left over? 27, yes. And so 40 through 66 is 27 chapters. Again, uh, again, I'm just saying I find this kind of fascinating. The Old Testament in Genesis begins with God laying the, found, the foundation that all of us have sinned, right? Sin was ushered into the world through Adam. If you look in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18... He begins Isaiah by laying out the case that all of us have sinned. Chapter 1, verse 18, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they will be like wool. Okay? So, 39 books in the Old Testament, 39 chapters in the first part of Isaiah, both begin with the idea of laying the foundation that we need a Savior, that we're all sinful. The Old Testament concludes with the promise that a Messiah is coming. That yes, you have sinned, but there's a Messiah coming who's going to redeem you from your sins. In Isaiah chapters 34, 35, it concludes that first half of the book Isaiah talking about a coming Messiah. When you turn over from Malachi to Matthew, Matthew opens up with John the Baptist, or the gospel start with John the Baptist, a voice. Yes, it's it's Malachi. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I just like calling him by his Italian name, Malachi. Yes. Uh, so the gospels start with a voice crying in the wilderness. Okay. Our second section of Isaiah starts with Isaiah chapter forty. If you turn over to Isaiah chapter forty. Somebody read verse 3. The voice of him that cried in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, make straight in the death of our highway for our God. So the New Testament opens with John the Baptist, a voice crying in the wilderness, who's trying to prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 40, the second part of the book of Isaiah, begins with verse 3 saying that there's a voice calling in the wilderness, clear the way of the Lord, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. The New Testament ends with Revelation and God ushering in a new heaven and a new earth. If you turn over to Isaiah chapter 66, last chapter of Isaiah, mm -hmm. 
verse 22. Come on, read that. As for the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. So just as the Bible ends in Revelation and God ushering in a new heaven and a new earth, Isaiah's book ends with God ushering in a new heaven and a new earth. Right in the middle of, verse, of chapter 40 and chapter 66 is chapter 53. The climax of the New Testament is the death of Jesus because that's where we find salvation. Right in the center of chapter 40 and chapter 66 is chapter 53, which is a prophecy about Jesus coming to suffer and die for our sins. I find it very, very fascinating. You just take that for what it's worth. Uh, just fascinating to me. The recurring, there's uh, some recurring themes through Isaiah, so let's go all the way back to chapter 1 again. And in chapter 1, he lays the groundwork for these recurring themes. The first one is the theme of rebellion. That the people of, the God's people have rebelled against him. They have no longer sought to follow him. They have no longer sought to seek him out above all their other gods. And they have rebelled against him. And in verses 4 through 17 of chapter 1, if you, we're not going to read all those verses, but in verse 4, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Uh, uh, so throughout this part of chapter 1 in these several verses he's talking about how they have rebelled against God they have uh, acted disobediently they have been rebellious in all their ways and they have not sought out the Lord the next recurring theme is the theme of repentance verse 18 Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse or rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So there he talks to them about repentance. If you would just do the right thing, you will experience the blessings of God. Then we see retribution. See a theme here? I like to alliterate things. Yeah. You're not godly unless you alliterate. <laughs> Retribution. Verses 21 to 23. How the faithful city has become a harlot, she who is full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. And it actually begins in verse 20 where he says, If you refuse or rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. So he says, if you don't repent, there's retribution coming. And you're going to face some very difficult things at the hands of the Lord. And then finally, restoration. Beginning in verse 24. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, 
I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and will remove all your alloy. Then I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. So here he says that one day is coming that you will be restored. Your nation will be back and it will be made new once again. Isaiah, of course, talks about some of those themes that we talked about earlier. And he talks about the coming of the Messiah. And he talks about the future day of the Messiah when he will reign eternally. And somebody has said that Isaiah is kind of like the guy, uh, if you looked, if all the prophets were trying to watch a baseball game. Okay. All the other prophets were watching the game kind of like through the knot hole on the fence. Okay. If you ever look through a little hole in a fence, you, know, you can only really see what's in front of you and maybe just a little bit. And so they said that all the prophets written as if they were looking through the hole in the fence. But Isaiah was the one prophet that God took up to the top of the tree behind the fence and he was able to see the whole game. So he was able to see much more than many of the other prophets were allowed to see. And so he saw more of Jesus. And somebody has said, it's kind of like if you were standing on a mountain and you looked out and you saw two other mountain peaks. And they said the close one is, of course, the first coming of Jesus. And the far mountain for Isaiah was the ultimate day of Jesus. And there's a huge valley in between where you can't really see a whole lot. So he knew that the Messiah was coming. And he knew one day he was going to reign eternally. He didn't really see everything that was happening in that valley in between. But he was able to see these two mountaintops. So we come here then, if you turn over to Isaiah chapter 6. It is the commissioning of Isaiah. Again, got another little alliteration going here. And Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. This is, actually, let's, I want to read verse, starting in verse 1, I guess. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We get a very good image there of the holiness of God. There's these winged creatures, six wings. With two of them they were able to fly, but with two of those wings they were just simply to cover their face because of the glory of God. And with two of them, they had to cover their feet because where they were at was holy ground because God was there. And they cried out. He said, they just called out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then in verse uh, 5, verse 4, And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I have lived among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. I don't know Isaiah personally. But I can't imagine Isaiah was too rotten of a guy. 
But notice his response when he encounters the holiness of God. You see, that's our standard. It doesn't matter what our spouse does. It doesn't matter what our neighbor does. It doesn't matter what that person down the pew from us does. They're not the standard. God is the standard. And His holiness should always reveal in us the sinfulness of who we are. And so here in His commissioning, first of all, we see conviction. In verse 5, when he sees the holiness of God, he said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. He is convicted over who he is in the presence of God. Next, we see his confession. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Why? Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He, has, he says, I realize how filthy I am, and the only thing I can do is confess that to God. Number three is then he experiences cleansing. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Next we see consecration. Verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And then finally we see the commission. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. So God commissions him. Now, as I said earlier, there's two main sections in Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39 and chapters 40 through 66. Somebody has entitled these two sections. Section number 1, chapters 1 through 39, is Condemnation. There's such a division in the book that there's actually liberal scholars, which shouldn't surprise you when I say the word liberal, that actually believe that Isaiah was written by two different people. That surely the same guy couldn't have written both of these. But I don't understand why that's so hard, because on one hand, he's talking about the sinfulness of the people and how God is going to deal with them. And on the other hand, in the second part of the book, he sees, of course, the, the uh, kindness and the long-suffering and the uh, mercy of God. And, of course, he's writing a completely different way because he sees that. So the first part is condemnation. The second part is consolation. Consolation. And in that consolation, commission. Yeah. So in that consolation, we see, if, again, keep turning here in Isaiah, turn over to chapter 40. This is where the second section begins. Uh, that consolation section, we see, we get some pretty good glimpses of God, and it's broken into three sections. Uh, the first one is God's greatness. In verses 12 through 17, it talks about the greatness of God. He says in verse 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills on a pair of scales? What he's saying, he said, How many know the depth of the oceans? And God just holds them right there in his little crook of his hand. That talks about the greatness of God. Uh, these mountains before God are just you know, little anthills. And who can even figure out how much they weigh? 
Okay, so we see the greatness of God in chapter 49 then. So from 40 to 48, we see he continues to declare in many different ways the greatness of God. Uh, starting in chapter 49, we see uh, God's grace. In uh, verses 14... Verse 14 of chapter 49, he says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. It's the grace of God. They're looking around and saying, God has forgotten us. Ever feel like that sometimes? Let's be honest. We've all felt that way sometimes. God has forgotten me. And God says, can a mother who is nursing her child ever forget that child? Well, no, because of the closeness that they experience. Can a mother ever forget the son of her womb? Even these may, see, he says, even a mom may forget about the child that she's nursing. But he says here, even these may forget, but I will not forget you. So as unlikely as it would be for a nursing mother to forget her child, he said, I will not even, the love that I have for you is even greater than that. And that pales in comparison because she might forget, but I would never, ever forget. So we see the grace of God in verses 49 through 59. And then in chapter 60 through the end of the book, we see the glory of God. Chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come. How many want to sing that song? Anybody know that song? Anybody hear it? Am I the only one who's heard that song? Okay. It's like a worship song. Arise, shine. Yeah. Okay, anyways, I don't know the tune or anything, and I don't sing. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. And nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So there, through the uh, chapter 66, uh, he reiterates the glory of God through there. Now, I just want to conclude here. we got just a few minutes. I want to conclude looking at the specific prophecies that we see of Jesus. Now, there are others that are in here. Isaiah chapter 7, Behold, a virgin shall give birth to a child, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. Uh, I'm going to look at just three of the big major ones that we see. And the first one is in Isaiah chapter 9, which is a typical Christmas uh, verses. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And this, uh, in the line there, talks about the coming king. The coming king. Not alliterated, but they make the same sound. Okay. They have that k sound. Of course, Miss Metz knows that because she taught letter sounds for so long. <laughs> Verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, 
to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So here in this verse, he shows us this coming king. And first of all is that he solves confusion. Because he is what? In verse 6, first first name that's given to him, he is what? Wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. Okay. Now you see how I interpret that. There's some who say it's actually two names. His name would be Wonderful, comma, Counselor, comma. Uh, I interpret it like the New American Standard does. There's no comma there. Wonderful Counselor. See, he's the one who solves confusion. He's a counselor that brings order out of the chaos in our lives. He's able to counsel us and, and give us direction in our lives. The second name is... Mighty God. The Mighty God. There we see that he... Uh, shelters from conflict. He is the mighty God. The Lord of hosts. The one who shelters from conflict. The next name. The everlasting Father. Which means that He shows compassion. He is a, an everlasting Father. I heard an amazing sermon one time uh, by a converted Muslim at Southeastern Baptist Seminary. Uh, it's, it was either Ergen or Emer Kaner. I can't remember which one. And I think they're both presidents. One, I think, is like a vice president of Liberty, and the other one's, I think, the president of Criswell College now or something. And I can't remember which one it was, but he preached an amazing sermon. And, and it was a, the title of the sermon is, Is God a Man or a Woman? And the conclusion of a sermon, this is what he said. I'll never forget it. I mean, he's, he's pounding on the pulpit. and uh, One of the funny things that he said, he said, uh, people always ask me, because, of course, he's from a Muslim background, and uh, he, he said, people always ask me how I feel about being profiled at the airport because, uh, you know, I get pulled outside every single time I'm at the airport. I'm the one who gets pulled aside, and they check me out. And he said, I think I should be pulled out because it was my people who flew those planes into two towers. He said, if rednecks were responsible, I think everybody wearing a NASCAR t-shirt should be checked out. (laughs) But he concluded his sermon. He said, is God a man or a woman? He said, God is not a man. God is not a woman. God is Father. And the whole emphasis of the message was He is a loving God. A loving father. He transcends He transcends personhood. He transcends sexuality. He is father. And so he shows compassion. And then the last name we have is Prince the Prince of Peace. Now oftentimes we think of peace as being the absence of conflict and war. Um, but here, of course, he's talking in a spiritual sense. He's going to be the Prince of Peace. He's the one who soothes our conscience. He brings peace from our guilt because of the salvation that he's offered. So the coming king. The next one is Isaiah chapter 11. No. Where am I? Yeah. 
And here we see his righteous reign. He is the one who is going to have a righteous reign. And I'm not going to read all of that, but in verse 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. Now who's Jesse? Other than one who had that girl in that song. <laughs> Jesse's girl. Okay, it's funny that we all know that song, but we don't know the song that comes exactly out of Scripture. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Jesse was David's father. Okay? It appeared as at this point that the Davidic kingdom had been cut off. Right? They're, they're going into captivity. There's no king. So what he's saying here, the shoot will spring from the stem, or actually the stump of Jesse. The tree's been cut down, and there's a stump there. And oftentimes a stump just means that it's just death. The tree has died. It's not going to. But here he says, there's one who's coming who's going to be like a shoot, a, a new branch, a new twig, a new tender shoot that's growing out of that stump. Of course, he's referring ultimately to Jesus. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. And he goes on and he talks about in verse 7 how the lion will eat straw with uh, the ox. And he talks about this coming kingdom where he's going to reign and he's going to bring peace and, and restoration to God's creation forever. And then finally, as I said earlier, the highlight is Isaiah chapter 53. And this is the chapter that talks about the suffering servant. The suffering servant. First, we see his rejection. In verses 1 through 3, rejection. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. They're hearkening back to Isaiah chapter 11. And like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Of course, uh, John tells us he came unto his own. And his own received him not. He was rejected. Number two, we see his passion. Surely our grief, in verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. So, and then he goes on, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. 
but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Give me just one minute to talk about verse 6 there. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. I come from an agricultural background. And actually, I grew up, my dad had cattle, my grandfather had pigs. When my grandfather died, my dad hated the pigs. He sold all the pigs, and the, the, the pig barn got turned into a wood shop. Okay? We still had cows. When I got old enough, we joined the 4-H and FFA, and so I wanted to get some pigs. My dad hated the idea, but we got pigs anyways. And anytime we had to load them, of course, pigs are very stubborn and all that. Uh, he would curse up a blue streak and kick the pigs and all that. But my brother said, well, if he gets pigs, I want to have some sheep. Okay? <laughs> so first time we'd ever had sheep. I learned a lot about sheep. Okay, and when I read this, when he calls us sheep, I, I really understand this now. Okay, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Do you know that sheep are the dumbest animals alive? There's no one dumber than a sheep. There, well, there was a story one time of some sheep that got out of the barn in a blizzard, and they got lost, and they all froze to death. There was about 10 or 15 of them, they froze to death, and they were only 50 yards away from the barn. They had no idea how to get back. I mean, they are dumb. <laughs> he says, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Did you know, too, that sheep are the dirtiest animal alive? Because, what's that? It doesn't surprise me. Because sheep have no way of cleansing themselves. Once something gets in their wool, it, it's, it's stuck there until somebody or something else removes it. Like a pig will roll around in the mud, but a pig can get up and rub up against a fence post or something like that. It'll get some of the mud off. Uh, you know, your cat will lick itself and, you know, cough up a hairball later. But every animal can cleanse itself except for a sheep. Can you see the spiritual parallel there? All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Okay, so we see his passion. Number three, we see his submission. In verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Now think, keep in mind, this was written thousands of years before Jesus was ever born. And he's already foretelling how he's going to die, how he's going to be buried. So his submission, and then number, number four there, his salvation. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. The Bible here says that God the Father was pleased to crush his son. We just said that he was a loving Heavenly Father. It doesn't sound so loving, does it? He was pleased to crush his son. However, because we, we look at that and we say, well, that seems pretty mean. But we don't understand the Trinity. Because in 1 Corinthians, it tells us that the Father, when Jesus was on the cross, the Father was in the Son, reconciling the world to Himself. It was ple the Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief. 
if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one. My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. His salvation. He suffered that for me. Let's go way back to the top of the page. Isaiah means Yahweh saves. And he gave them a very clear picture how Yahweh, the personal God of heaven, was going to provide salvation. Any questions, comments, complaints?